from the Southern Oral History Program at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, this is Press Record, the podcast about the joys and challenges of learning history by talking to those who lived it. I'm Rachel Seidman. And I'm Carol Prince. So you may capitalize on a moment in history. A moment in history may lend itself to what's going on, but you have to come forward with a movement. We march for the least of these God's children. We march for the least of these God's children. plus years, Durham City Council just passed an ERA resolution. Okay, That's like the first stage of awareness. The press was all over it. They were like, what's happening? Equal Rights Amendment? Why are we talking about women's equal rights all of a sudden? We will not be moved. We march in memory of our sister ancestors, Dr. Dorothy Irene Height, Dr. Stephen Lawrence Stuckers, Sheldon Chisholm, Welcome back to Press Record, everyone. Hi, Carol. Hi. Uh, we hope everyone's new year is off to a good start. And that you all had at least a somewhat relaxing holiday season. And if you marched in one of the many women's marches this past weekend, or if you didn't, our episode today might be of interest. Of course it will be, definitely. You just... <laughs> Why would it not be? <laughs> you just heard some of the footage that Carol recorded from the D.C. March. And you were there too, right, Rachel? I was. In fact, I was there with Jacqueline Dowd Hall, the founder of the Southern Oral History Program, but we never could get close enough to hear the speakers. Well, luckily, I ended up getting pretty close to the stage uh, with the folks that I was with. And uh, in the intro to this episode, you heard Rosalind Brock from the NAACP and Melanie Campbell from the Black Women's Roundtable, who were both speakers there, and then interspersed. With them, you heard Marina Grohl, chairwoman of NC4ERA, who we'll hear from later. Uh, But don't worry, we'll get to hear lots more clips uh, from the march at the end of the episode. Great. But in the meantime, we thought we'd dive right into a naughty episode topic. Carol, do you want to do the big reveal? What are we talking about today? So we are going to dig into the ERA. And for the folks out there listening who may have no idea what you're talking about, that stands for? The Equal Rights Amendment. Okay. So why are we talking about this now? So when I was doing research for our last episode on women in politics, which if you're listening and haven't already checked out episode 10, please go take a listen on our website, www.sohp.org backslash podcast. I was really overwhelmed with the amount of archival interviews. There was just so much, and it didn't all fit into one episode. Okay, so this is almost like part two of our episode on women in politics in the South. Well, right, and I was noticing that one thing that kept coming up in these oral histories was the ERA in the South, and there was enough really rich material to make a whole new episode. So can we give a little snapshot of what exactly the ERA is? So in the first part of the episode, I'm actually going to sit down with Danielle Balderas, a graduate student and a friend, working on 20th century U.S. women's history, and she's going to give us a great survey. 
Um, but do you want to give a one-sentence summary and actually read out what the amendment says? Sure. It was a constitutional amendment that would have legally codified equal rights between men and women. They introduced it into every session of Congress from 1923 on, but ultimately it failed in 1982. So you want to hear what it actually says? Sure. What it actually says is that, quote, equality of rights under the law shall not be denied or abridged by the United States or by any state on account of sex. That's it. Wow. That's bleak. Yes, but we're going to be talking about why it failed and why using oral history is a great tool for deeper understanding. And to those of you out there that aren't really law or policy nerds who might be worried about constitutional amendment jargon, who have a whole host of podcast choices to listen to, (laughs) fear not, we're going to keep it fun. Yeah, fun with the ERA on press record. And what is more fun than oral history? Really, I can't think of anything. So, last question. Why do you think we should be talking about this right now? Well, it feels oddly important to me to look back at that moment for a variety of reasons. For one, it seems like the nation feels more divided now than it's ever been, but there are other moments in the past where we've been deeply divided, and I think it's good to look back at how people, and women especially, fought valiantly on either side of the ERA. And at that moment also, I think, profoundly failed to understand each other for all kinds of different reasons. Definitely. And we're seeing some eerie parallels, like you said. I mean, we're obviously seeing this upsurge in women's activism with the women's marches being the most public examples. But there was also a women's march on Washington in 1978 in support of the ERA that drew 100,000 people. And I remember in the last episode, we talked about whether or not there's really a unified women's agenda and what happens when coalitions of women come together and break apart. But instead of us just talking about the parallels, we're going to share some great clips from our archives and let people represent themselves in their own words. Absolutely. So we'll hear from Danielle Balderas about the history. Then we'll dig deep into the archives at the end of the episode We'll even get to hear some women who are a part of this movement around the ERA and beyond. So I'm pretty excited about this episode. Me too. So stay with us. So let's get started with a quick historical summary of the ERA. You sat down with Danielle Balderas, a second-year graduate student in history here at UNC. Right. She studies 20th century U.S. women's history and the intersections between conservatism and feminism, and she also happens to be a great friend. So I'm really excited to have her on the podcast for the very first time. Great. Let's hear it. So, Danielle, I am so excited to have you on the podcast to talk about one of your favorite topics, the ERA. So I thought you could give us kind of a historical roadmap and um, to give us a little context before we dive into these oral histories. I've been waiting for this moment for such a long time. What do you want to know? So let's just start at the very beginning. Like the very beginning? Eve was framed. You know, not that far back. Uh, How about, say, the 19th century? Okay, fine. So I guess we go all the way back to the 14th Amendment. And when was that ratified? 1868. 
So right after the Civil War, which resulted in emancipation, a series of amendments was passed, the 13th, 14th, 15th, in order to change the Constitution to essentially reflect new definitions of citizenship. Right. Okay, just to break this down, when we say ratified, we mean... So states give it the okay, they sign it, consent to it, they make it valid. Great. So what did the 14th Amendment do? So when the 14th Amendment was passed, it defined citizens as all persons born or naturalized in the United States and guaranteed equal protection under the laws, which sounds great, but also did this new really interesting thing that introduced the word male into the Constitution for the first time. In Section 2, the amendment said, but when the right to vote at any election is denied to any of the male inhabitants of such state. So the 15th Amendment declared that the right of citizens to vote shall not be denied or abridged on account of race, color, or previous condition of servitude. But women of all races were still denied the ballot. Interesting how that happens. Right? (laughs) So... So, a lot of women suffrage organizers who'd been trying to get the vote since the 1840s were furious. So, then there's this major push for suffrage at the end of the 19th and beginning of the 20th century. Which, just to interject here, we detailed in the last podcast on women in politics. So, go check it out on our website. (laughs) Thanks, Carol. You are welcome. (laughs) Anyways, this push for suffrage culminated in the 19th Amendment which effectively gave white women the ballot, and the 1965 Voting Rights Act, which solidified the U.S. government's commitment to protect the ballot for black and white women. Okay, so let's take it back to the early 20th century. Some women have the ballot, theoretically. Right, but not all women are convinced that it's enough to protect them from sex discrimination. So basically, you can have the legal right to vote, but still have horrible but legally justified things happen to you because you're a woman. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) This is spelled out. (laughs) So in 1923, Alice Paul, who was a major activist in the suffrage movement, introduced the Lucretia Ma Amendment, which read, men and women shall have equal rights throughout the United States in every place subject to its jurisdiction. I mean, wouldn't it be neat to have someone name a constitutional amendment after you? Pretty neat. Life goals, definitely. Life goals. Okay, so how was this received? Well, it's a tough sell. It's introduced to every session of Congress without success. But by 1943, it was starting to gain some traction. It was renamed the Alice Paul Amendment and starts to get introduced into the platform of political parties. I'm on the edge of my seat here. Okay, so then the 60s happen. There's a ton of social activism happening. Women are starting to organize differently, inspired by the tactics of the civil rights movement, and started to bring people into the fold who might have opposed the amendment originally. And meanwhile, the amendment keeps being introduced in every session of Congress, and in 1972, finally passes in a different form, which we know now as the Equal Rights Amendment. All right, that's great. Persistence. Ah, not so fast. It has to go to the states for that pesky process of ratification to be the 27th Amendment to the Constitution. That process being... So, for an amendment to be ratified, it needs two-thirds of Congress to vote yes, and then three-fourths of the states, so 38 states in total. And it had until 1979 to get it done. Okay, so how'd that go? Uh, not so well. (laughs) What happened? Well, right out of the gate, 22 states ratify. 
great. But then things started to slow down to more of a trickle. Like, what kind of trickle are we talking about? Like, eight, three, one, none (laughs) in consecutive years by 1978. And some states even tried to rescind their ratification. Wow. What (laughs) happened? So the opposition began to organize. And there are some let's say, battles between 1972 and 1982. And there are also some major changes happening in the nation. Uh, what, what kind of battles? So on the one side, you've got the pro-people trying to extend the deadline. And there's a huge march on Washington of about 100,000 women, hunger strikes, rallies. Congress says, okay, you have until 1982 to get enough support to get this thing together. And on the other side, you have people who really didn't want this thing to pass. Okay, so can you explain to me why some women would not want an Equal Rights Amendment to pass? So here's the really interesting part. You've got a lot of different groups who oppose it for different reasons. You've got people who thought it was federal overreach and worried about precedent, business people who thought it would cost a lot of money to give equal rights to women in an employment context, And then you have women like Phyllis Schlafly. Phyllis Schlafly. Phyllis. Perhaps the opposition's most famous figure who worried about what an equal rights amendment would mean for society. She argued women would lose their protected status as mothers and that women would have to sign up for the draft. So basically, she was concerned that the ERA would change the fundamental fabric of our society that is organized in a lot of ways around gender. And she wasn't alone. Exactly. Okay, so these broader social changes that you were talking about, what do you mean by that? Yeah, so things aren't looking so good when the ERA fails to meet the deadline in 1979. In 1980, you see a huge conservative political tide. Reagan's elected, the ERA is moved from the Republican Party's platform, the landscape isn't looking so hospitable. So what happens? So in 1982, the U.S. failed to secure ratification of three-fourths of the states, and the push effectively died. So why did the ERA fail? So this is the big question, right? And lots of historians and policymakers have tried to answer it. What I think is really interesting is that some people have argued that the people who supported the ERA were so wrapped up in their pro-support bubble, and they worked really hard to get feminist concerns in the national consciousness, that in the process they failed to really recognize or communicate with people who oppose the amendment and take their concerns seriously. Okay, this sounds very familiar. It does, doesn't it? And, you know, the people who were pro-ERA were thinking, how could you possibly be against equal rights? Exactly. I mean, that's what I'm thinking. (laughs) But we also have to take into account that folks had some real anxieties about social change and what that might look like in order to understand going forward what getting an amendment passed might look like. And in order for a constitutional amendment to be passed, it needs really broad and deep support. Well, Danielle, I just want to thank you for taking time to uh, walk me and our listeners through this brief history of the ERA, and I'm so glad that we got to do this uh, the day before the Women's March, which we're going to together. Road trip! Tonight, anyone out there who is, uh, well, I guess you'll be listening to this. (laughs) But uh, is there anything else you want to say before we turn to listen to the women who were working through this issue as it was happening? Yeah, just that it seems like a really complex political maneuvering issue, which it is. 
But instead of getting bogged down in the ratification state-by-state solution, thinking about it as a moment that really reflects how there is no single women's agenda and that this was an incredibly polarizing issue and not a simple one. But people on either side, they really failed to listen and hear each other. And I think from an oral history standpoint, that's really fascinating and important. That is a great transition to where we're headed next. Thanks so much, Danielle. This has been the most fun I've had in days. Thanks for having me on. And just a note, if anyone out there listening is still confused about the history, or if you just want to know more, feel free to check out our website at www.sohp.org backslash podcast. We'll have resources online and links to more information. So that was a great historical overview, but I'm excited to really dig into these archives. What are we going to hear in this part of the episode? So I tried to find a whole range of perspectives from our really rich interview database, which of course mostly reflects the views of women living in southern states that did not ratify the ERA. Okay, and we're also going to get a broad sweep of time periods, right, and and generations. So some of these interviews are from the 1970s, when women from both an earlier generation of suffragists and younger women are being interviewed and trying to make sense of these battles as they are happening. And then others are more recent and reflective about why the struggle turned out the way it did. Right, so I figured it would make the most sense to start with some interviews with women who were politically active during the early 20th century, even if they're being interviewed in the 70s. So the first clip is from an interview in 1974 with Gion Johnson, who was a white sociologist at UNC Chapel Hill in the 1920s. And she was really interested in race relations and the history of race in the South and was one of the really few women grad students at UNC and you know she was generally known for being progressive but she had really complex feelings about the necessity of the ERA and so you'll hear her talk about the ERA and her concerns specifically about the courts. And following that clip will be Rosamond Boyd who was born in 1903. She eventually taught sociology at the University of South Carolina and became chair of the sociology department at Converse College. She was really interested in understanding why women in society deferred to men. And here she is talking in 1973 about class distinctions in opposition and support for the Equal Rights Amendment. She was really torn between her own aspirations for women's social and political equality and her assumptions about traditional gender norms, which you'll hear. As a, a focus on the rights of women, perhaps it's needed. I know that there's great concern on the part of conservative lawyers and judges that uh, women will be harmed and women who have worked bitterly and long to get special legislation protecting women and children are very much opposed to ERA. They think that women will be left uh, without any rights at all. Men, yes, men and women are equal under, would be equal under ERA, but men would be more equal than women. (laughs) They have tried so many cases in which women have uh, got the short end of the stick and been so grateful for legislation protecting the rights of women, that they're very hesitant to see uh, these rights given up. The single woman 
wants the Equal Rights Amendment if she's a professional or businesswoman. Yes. And a property owner and so forth. Wants yes. the Equal Rights Amendment. But uh, the majority of women uh, below that level just don't. No. And I don't think the married woman is too interested in the Equal Rights Amendment. The, those that I know that are actively working for passage of the Equal mm -hmm. Rights Amendment mm -hmm. are married professional women. The ones mm -hmm. that I know well, are married yes, professional women. but they women. are professional women. That's uh, right. For the most part. <clears throat> well, too many, the, uh, too many of the too many of the homemaker yes. married women who are not working and not professional <clears throat> think that this would be uh, maybe harmful to them because it uh, might remove their security of support yes. and uh, it might uh, be detrimental to them. So here I think we're seeing some really interesting reasons why white women who would have considered themselves progressive feminists and supported suffrage were feeling ambivalent about the repercussions of the Equal Rights Amendment. Right. I mean, particularly, you know, these progressive reformers in the early 20th century who were really concerned that women would lose this, you know, protected category that they had really fought for in the workplace. Um, and so, you know, that's one reason of, uh, for opposition. And then as far as the main opposition goes, I don't think we can really talk about the sort of anti-ERA movement without at least mentioning Phyllis Schlafly, who was probably the most vocal opponent to the ERA. So here's a brief clip, not from our archives, um, so you can get a sense of her opposition. Uh, holds that, quote, equality of rights under the law shall not be denied or abridged by the United States or any state on account of sex. That doesn't sound particularly subversive, and I would therefore like to begin by asking Mrs. Schlafly to state her principal objection to ERA. Well, it's the very innocuous wording of the amendment that is the reason why many people didn't realize in the beginning what unfortunate consequences it would have. But fortunately, the amending process calls for a full-blown debate in the state legislatures around the country, and this is where we find out some of the things that were not originally realized by many people who voted for it. Uh, we find, as we look into the matter, that ERA won't give women anything which they haven't already got or have a way of getting. But on the other hand, it will take away from women some of the most important rights and benefits and exemptions we now have. So Schlafly was immensely successful in sort of single-handedly firing up the opposition to the ERA, and a lot of people credit her basically with um, putting a stop to it and, and making it so that it didn't pass. Um, but we're going to switch gears now to the pro side. So up next is a clip that starts to unpack some of the communication failures and main points of contention. This is from a 1974 interview with Barbara Sylvester, a white woman who was the South Carolina Youth Services Chair. One thing that's hurt women with their chances of being elected, I think, and I believe in, in equal rights, but I think that to a degree the, the ERA thing got completely out of hand. And I think that those of us who do support it and are level-headed about it, maybe we fell down on our job that we didn't get to as many female groups as, as we could to explain that you're really not giving up anything, but that if you're educated enough to 
to be in a position that you deserve to be paid the same thing that the male is paid. I think that in the state of South Carolina, if women had gotten themselves together and gone with one presentation on the ERA, that it would have paid. So following up with sort of the class tensions and questions about employment that Sylvester hit on, I think it's really important to also hear from African-American political leaders about their understandings of the ERA. And so, uh, you know, we'll start with Polly Murray, who uh, was a renowned civil rights leader, women's activist. She was the first black woman to be ordained as an Episcopal priest. Um, And this is a clip taken from a 1976 interview, which was five hours long, so it was really tough to pick a clip, but this is her talking about how she understood the political and legal realities of the ERA. Uh, My strategy there was that up until that time there had been almost no possibility of the ratification of an Equal Rights Amendment. Mm -hmm. And that... I know there had been efforts since the 1920s. That's right. And that what we ought to do in the meantime, since there didn't seem to be an opportunity for a breakthrough, I was not per se opposed to an Equal Rights Amendment. I just felt it was unrealistic to suppose that it would happen, that we should take advantage of the 14th Amendment. In practical history, this is exactly what has happened. Uh, We are still for states short of an Equal Rights Amendment, but a significant number of cases have increasingly made applicable the 14th Amendment to sex discrimination as well as race discrimination. I don't want to push that too far because it has not gone as far as it should. It has not gone as far as the Supreme Court has not yet ruled that um, sex discrimination per se is constitutionally suspect as it has done in yes. the case of race. Yes, but, yes. yes, but um, in the meanwhile, we have pushed it quite far. So the following clip is from Gwen Cherry. The interview was conducted in 1974, and Cherry was an African-American legislator from Florida. She was elected to the Florida House in 1970, and she was the first African-American woman to serve as a state legislator in Florida. She served four terms and in each introduced the ERA along with the Martin Luther King Jr. state holiday. And in this clip, she's talking about how the ERA fared in her state. But you'll then hear her start talking about a woman named Paula Hawkins, who was a white Republican woman whose political career was really ascending in the 1970s. Hawkins ultimately became the first woman to be elected to the U.S. Senate from the South, But at the time of the interview, she was really campaigning as a consumer advocate. Now, Florida came very, almost passed the ERA, am I correct on that? Well, the first time I carried it, we passed it in the lower house. So we overwhelmingly passed it the first year I carried it. The second year, uh, it was a 10-vote shot. This year, the Senate turned it down. So we've tried all kind of strategy. uh, Did the House pass it this year? We didn't take it over. Well, it was asked. I asked the Senate to take it since they had never voted on it, and we had twice. Was there an active women's movement in support of Paula Hawkins? No. No. Paula Hawkins, uh, the only disappointment we've had with Paula, and I'll tell her this, uh, 
women were very proud of Paula being elected to the top position, but Paula has not spoken out for the ERA either. She has not identified with, with women since she's been in. I think she will move closer to us now with the election coming up. When we came in, you said she was the hottest thing going in she Florida is. politics. She is the hottest thing. She's the hottest thing in Florida politics right now. She has a beautiful chance. This is the only thing that might throw her, and I don't think women will remember, and I don't think any of us that have, have observed it very carefully will remind anybody of it. But Paula was mute and could have made a big difference with her Republican uh, delegation when the ERA was up to speak to them or to come before that committee. So in this clip, I think you can really hear beneath the surface some of the class and racial tensions that the ERA exposed, and um, these come to light here. So we have time for two more clips, right? Right. Uh, we will make time for two more clips because <laughs> <laughs> these are so great. Uh, I thought we'd close out our archive segment with two really powerful clips. Um, the first is a 2007 interview with Elaine Barney, uh, who's a feminist activist from North Carolina. And she's talking about the profound sense of frustration and sadness she felt when the ERA didn't pass in North Carolina. And then you'll hear something a little bit more uplifting. The following excerpt is from a 1995 interview with Eva Clayton, an African-American politician uh, who served in North Carolina. And uh, we actually heard from her in the last episode. And here she's talking about, um, you know, what happened in North Carolina, but also um, the ripple effects of that failure and sort of looking forward to what came next. One of the things that I still feel angry and sad about is the failure in this state to pass the ERA. I still don't understand why people, and I was going to say men, but it's women too, who are so threatened by the idea that women should have the same rights as men. You know, we, we went on the march to Washington. Um, it's just amazing, amazing to see all the, the people marching on behalf of, of that. And yet it still hasn't passed. So we come back and we're marching in, in Raleigh. But then I went to the, to the uh, legislature meeting because they were going to vote on it. And Jimmy Green was the Speaker of the House. We filed in, and Jimmy Green was there with his gavel. And people who were supporting uh, the um, ERA um, had, you know, and had petitioned for it. It was just packed. And it didn't come up, and it didn't come up. And then people who were in the legislature were saying, you know, um, Mr. Green, and he would just bang the gavel and say, next. And anytime someone tried to bring up ERA, he would bang the gavel. No one was allowed to speak to that issue at all. And then a vote was taken. And, it, and the vote was to defeat the ERA movement but there was no discussion. 
there was no arguments. He threatened to, um, if anyone tried to speak, not only would he bang the gavel, but as I recall, I think he threatened to have them led out of the room. I mean, you talk about disempowerment, and everyone was just furious. And he, <laughs> I'm surprised the head of the gavel didn't fly off because he was just banging and banging with a vengeance. And it later came out, I think like the next day, that there had been a secret meeting uh, where the men in, um, and I don't know how many of the men, but enough to, to have it go that way, agreed, and it was called a gentleman's agreement, that they would not allow the issue of ERA to come up on the floor. And, um, and Green was certainly part of that because he was the Speaker of the House. So the whole thing was cut and dried. I mean, it was, there was no reason to have gone there. And I'm still furious about it because it was just such a denial of legislative process and of the rights of citizens to petition, uh, to seek clarity, to have a vote. Well, um, the RA battle that I was involved in was short-lived. Now, it had been heating up across the country in, in terms of uh, trying to get uh, North Carolina to be the state that we're ratifying. So at that point, we were one of the key states to do. Although it was short-lived, it was at a critical point. In fact, um, many of the national organizations came down to try to push that. And in some ways, I think the resistance was consistent with the pressure. Um, well, I think two things happened. I think women were disappointed, angered, and in some ways more determined than ever that some things needed to change. I saw the whole issue of parity of job commission come out of that kind of firm and we lost ERA. Well, something ought to be done in terms of make sure as we look at comparable jobs for women. And, and so there was this whole commission put together. And um, I would suspect, though I have no way of, of, of um, proving this, is that some women who might not have run for office were more than determined that they ought to run for office and that it coalesced women in a more determined effort than would have normally been if they had not been engaged in that struggle. That was, you know, in many ways coming out for many women who had not been involved before. As always, links to the full transcripts of these interviews and biographies of the interviewees will be available on our website, www.sohp.org backslash podcast. This segues nicely into our final segment about how women are organizing now around the ERA in North Carolina. So this last section is really exciting because we actually get to bring these archival interviews into conversation with some recordings that were taken more recently. Right. As you heard in the opening of the episode, the ERA has had a recent rebirth and many women are working to get it reintroduced and passed. Here's some audio from Marina Grohl, the chair of NC for ERA, talking about this very issue. And, and this is a really recent recording of Marina Grohl, actually from right before the election in 2016. And so she was really fired up and believes that the way to solve the myriad of 
issues facing women, including pay inequity, workplace discrimination, violence against women, is the ERA. Yeah, she's talking about major roadblocks to passage and how people, how to talk to people across the aisle and what she would like to see moving forward. Now, some see the ERA as problematic in that it would do exactly what it is supposed to do with regards to pay equity, afford constitutional recourse, protecting women from sexual discrimination by securing the rights to equal pay for equal work. But if the ERA secures those rights, businesses violating those rights would find it pretty expensive to do so. It could become an expensive proposition. Okay? Basically what they're doing is they're pitting business profits against women's rights. So they would tell you in these words, I'm not anti-woman, I'm just pro-business. Let that sink in just a second, okay? But we are working on it. Um, we just ran a survey. We're getting ready, okay? Because we're going to introduce the Equal Rights Amendment back into the North Carolina legislature again, shock, shock, okay? After 40, 40, whatever something years, okay? Um, and what we're finding when we put that survey out was lo and behold, guess what? A few Republicans stepped a hand up and said, well, yeah, I am for women's equal rights. A few libertarians stuck their hands up, went, well, <clears throat> Me too, okay? So sometimes just opening up the, the space and coming to the legislature, again, not waiting for the legislature to suddenly take the ball and say, I think we need to go win the civil rights movement. We take the ball to them and we start asking them, are you for this? If you're for this, will you co-sponsor the bill? You know, Will you help lead the civil rights movement for women, women identify? So, um, Part of doing that is you have to ask them, when was the last time somebody went and sat in front of the party that they might not be the persuasion of and actually sat down and had a conversation? Okay. It's that constant drip, drip, drip of women coming into your office and men and going, this is important to us, this is important to us, this is important to us. It's going to be an uphill climb, but at the same time, you start and you, you start with the decline. We can't wait for the legislators to come to us. That's not going to happen. So I think this is a really important issue. Uh, she's responding to a question from the audience about overcoming partisanship. And while this question was asked before the election, I think it's got some really important implications for now. Uh, after Marina Grohl, uh, we'll segue into some interviews that I actually got when I was up uh, at the Women's March in Washington and I spoke to two people who were from the ERA coalition that were handing out information at the Women's March. Hi, uh, my name is Marcy Sims, and I'm here at the Women's March because I've been working on the reintroduction of the ERA because women are not in the Constitution. Women have to get in the Constitution. A lot of the things that we are dealing with legislatively and in the courts have to do with the fact that we're not in the Constitution. There are so many issues that we deal with that have to do with the court system, the fact that women were never put in the Constitution has been something over 245 years we have to correct. Don't get lazy, don't get tired, don't get discouraged. Hi, my name is Madeline Guerra. I'm a sophomore at NYU and I support the ERA because it's such a basic foundational principle that we should have equal rights for all women. And now's the time to really introduce it. When we have our, their attention, or all these women here, we need it. 
there's so many loopholes in certain laws that we have, like the PADIS, um, the Equal Pay Act and the Pregnancy Discrimination Act that allow for legislators to go through the cracks and allow for discrimination to happen. So it's just important that we have a law that says we need we have equal rights for all women across the U.S. Thank you. No, thank you. Well, that definitely brings the past into the present. And on that note, we'll close out with one last archival interview with Mabel Politzer, a suffragist interspersed with footage from the march. And I think both of these clips give us a sense of how protest and demonstrations have changed and remain the same over time. If it hadn't been picketing, they might not have gotten it for years. It helped it so greatly. It was only when they picketed. It was when they had these bonfires. It was when they did everything to bring it to the attention of the people. I didn't know about the bonfires. Oh dear, these marvelous women. They would soak, first it was wood in oil, and the urns in which they lighted the bonfires were so high, and these dear little young women would keep the fires burning as a reminder. Where were these bonfires? In Washington, right by the, near the Capitol. record. Special thanks to Danielle Balderas, Marina Grohl, Taylor Livingston, and all the marchers this weekend. As always, we want to hear from you. You can subscribe and rate us on iTunes or email us at pressrecordsohp at gmail.com. Tweet us at SOHP Oral History or like and comment on our Facebook page. Just log on to Facebook and search Press Record Podcast. We hope you've enjoyed listening. Please check out our website, www.sohp.org backslash podcast for additional resources and information. We're so excited to bring you a batch of new episodes in 2017. So stay tuned and we'll be back next month.